Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to episode number 159 of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Thanks for joining us today and downloading today's episode. Today we are talking about making sense of beliefs and behaviors in pain care. Our expert guest this week is Dr. Samantha Bunsley, who is a physiotherapist and has worked in clinical practice for more than 10 years before undertaking a PhD with Professor Peter O'Sullivan at Curtin University in Australia. Her PhD research was entitled, A Qualitative Investigation of Pain-Related Fear in People with Low Back Pain. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne, working to optimize treatment outcomes for people with osteoarthritis. We'll talk more about that on the show today. Dr. Bunsley's work is part of an international effort to change the narrative in musculoskeletal pain care. She's been awarded major grants by the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, to improve evidence-based decision-making among orthopedic surgeons and implement non-surgical care pathways for people with end-stage osteoarthritis. On today's episode, you'll learn why the beliefs people hold about their musculoskeletal pain matter, where do unhelpful beliefs come from, and how the common sense model can help us understand unhelpful beliefs and behaviors. In today's episode, Samantha describes findings from her qualitative research based on data collected through interviews from both patients as well as clinicians. She's keen to emphasize that qualitative research is more than just a collection of stories. It involves robust methods of data collection and data analysis. Rather than going into detail about these methods on today's episode, Samantha has provided free access to all of her research in which she explains the science behind qualitative research and describes the contribution qualitative approaches can make in the field of pain science. This includes some of her first work in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in 2017, an article titled Making Sense of Low Back Pain and Pain-Related Fear, as well as a 2019 study in the Journal of Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research titled Misconceptions and the Acceptance of Evidence-Based Non-Surgical Interventions for Knee Osteoarthritis a qualitative study. Links to all of her research will be included on the page at the Integrated Pain Science Institute. But if you'd like to download them for free right now, all you have to do is text the word 159-DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. That's 159-DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. And I'll send you all of her research in one nice packet right to your inbox. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can open up a new browser and type in the URL www dot integrative pain science institute dot com forward slash one five nine download that's integrative pain science institute dot com forward slash one five nine download and if you have questions or you want to continue the conversation make sure to join the integrative pain science institute's community facebook page to do that all you have to do is go to the url www dot facebook dot com forward slash groups forward slash IPSI community. That's www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash IPSI community, and we can connect there personally. Okay, let's learn about how the common sense model can help us understand unhelpful beliefs and behaviors when it comes to chronic musculoskeletal pain with Dr. Samantha Bunsley. Hey, Samantha, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Joe. It's good to be here this morning. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us. I know you're a bit far away from where I am in New York City, but tell our listeners and where you are and, and what you're currently doing and what's your work. Well, this morning I'm in Brisbane, so Queensland in Australia, but I actually have a position, an academic position at the University of Melbourne. So that's quite a long way from Brisbane. It's about a two-hour flight to the south. Um, the sort of life circumstances move me away from my postdoc, but I'm very lucky to be part of a really supportive group at Melbourne University. I'm very open-minded and they're happy to, for me to go between. So I spend my time between Brisbane and Melbourne. And you, of course, you're a physiotherapist or a physical therapist, as we say here in the US, and you study things about pain and related to pain, especially beliefs, right? That's right. Yes. So I started out like many researchers in physio world. And so I worked clinically for around 10 years in musculoskeletal physio and had a strong background in, I guess, the biomedical sort of model and my undergrad training. But I was always really interested in those sort of non-specific aspects people call them, of that clinical encounter with patients. So all the other things like that, the relationship with the patients, their beliefs, their understanding around pain. And, and I also really loved the patient's story side of things and sort of story gathering. And that was something that really, yeah, just really drew me. That's the part that I loved about my job. And then sort of life circumstances took me to Perth in, in Western Australia. There I was on the doorstep of Peter O'Sullivan and his group at Curtin University there. And so just sort of knocked on Pete's door and, and we had a coffee. And sort of over the course of that coffee, we thought we could mac out a sort of PhD and, and all around, I guess, gathering people's stories. We thought we would look at a, a qualitative, so an interview-based study, looking at the experiences and beliefs of people with, with high pain-related fear. And so that's where I started in my research journey. Yeah, I know you've done some great work, obviously, with Peter O'Sullivan, who's been on, the, been on this podcast. And some people from his group, JP Canero, has been on the podcast as well. So I know right. you working together yeah. and really making nice leeway with regard to CFT, cognitive functional therapy, and, and other aspects of it. So you mentioned you're a qualitative researcher, which it's mm-hmm. always interesting because I, of course, interview a lot of researchers and they love to talk about the kind of hard stats, like quantitative type stuff. What attracted you more toward the qualitative side? Because I feel like we need more of it in the pain world. Yeah. Well, at the time when I was sitting out of my PhD, we were interested in knowing more about patient beliefs. And really, we realized that there hadn't been a lot of people asking what the patients themselves believed. We had measures that we thought were measuring what we thought they were measuring. But that's always a little bit the problem that when we have a sort of quantitative, or I often get asked what's the difference between a survey and an interview. And both of them are important scientific tools in that sense. Um, and they, but they're really used to answer different research questions. So if we wanted to know what patients believe, we could um, sit down as researchers or as clinicians and we could make a list of all the things we think are important to ask patients. And then we could distribute that survey to patients. And really, we would just be confirming or disconfirming our beliefs as clinicians. But the alternative way to do that is to flip it on the other side and to ask, go to the patients themselves, the people that we're interested in, and ask them what they believe. And so collecting that information from the ground up, in a sense, that obviously leads to a different sort of scientific validity in that sense. The patients themselves are validating that information. So in the case of my PhD, we were really interested in, in taking that approach. And it's something that the group at Curtin hadn't really explored in a lot of, uh, we hadn't used those sort of methods much before. So my PhD was a little bit new and methodologically new. We saw the need for it. And I guess as we went along in this PhD, we saw the, the, the value that these sort of methods can contribute to the space. And then since then, I guess I've moved 
in my postdoctoral work, I'm part of a group of orthopedic surgeons actually at the University of Melbourne. I'm doing osteoarthritis research. There, I'm just very lucky to be part of a very open-minded group too of, of orthopedic surgeons that really love, love the stuff. And I've interviewed a lot of surgeons too. They're very open to sitting down and having a chat with me, which I'm very lucky position for. But also, we're interested in um, doing a lot of implementation work too. So when we have an intervention that we know works in theory, um, it can be quite different to implementing that into real-world context. And that's where qualitative methods are really important because they can understand that sort of contextual information that might explain why really promising interventions can fall down when you get to the implementation phase. Mm, Interesting. If we have time, I want to come back and touch based on the orthopedic part a little bit on the orthopedic physicians, because definitely it's interesting to speak with a researcher who's helping educate and change that a little bit, obviously changing pain with that group. Why do the beliefs that people hold about their musculoskeletal pain matter? Yeah. So just at a very sort of basic level, if we feel, um, at any person, if we feel a, a pang of pain somewhere, say in our, in our lower back, then whether we're going to cry when we feel that pain or reach for our running shoes or be anti-inflammatories or we're going to go to bed or call the doctor, all those behaviors are going to depend on lots of different factors. But we know that amongst the strongest of those factors is going to be their beliefs, the person's beliefs about their pain. Over 20 years ago now that Waddell said that what we believe and do about pain can be more disabling than pain itself. So time and time again, we're seeing the importance of beliefs. And Ryan and Linton, going back to the fear avoidance model, that was sort of the leading explanation for a long time and still is a very, um, a very widespread used model, which describes how when at the onset of pain, so when we feel a pain, how we interpret that pain, if we interpret it as having catastrophic consequences, then that can lead to pain-related fear and the avoidance of activities associated with the threat of pain or the threat of harm. That can lead into this vicious cycle of you know, avoidance, disuse, um, disability, and, and so on. And on the other side of that cycle, the, the absence of pain catastrophizing facilitates that normal confrontation of movement and that trajectory of recovery. So that's been a model that's, as I say, been widely used. But... In addition to sort of those, those direct influences, I guess, so that avoidance of something that we are afraid of, and that avoidance can be the outright avoidance or the guarding and the bracing and tensing, changing your movement while changing the pattern of the way you move to protect your back during movement. So we have those sort of direct behaviors, but also really at the start of my PhD, when we were looking at, I went back to the literature to see what some qualitative studies, what, had, what interview-based studies had been done in patients exploring beliefs from the patient's perspective. And what we found is not, not a lot of um, studies directly exploring beliefs, but around 18 or 20 studies that had been exploring the lived experience of back pain. And that's non-specific back pain. So people that hadn't had a diagnosis for their pain or had been diagnosed with a non-specific low back pain. And looking at those stories, there was this really common theme across all these papers, which was involving hundreds of patients that there was a sense amongst these patients that there was an underlying pathoanatomical explanation to their pain, which just hadn't been diagnosed or identified yet. And there was this real sense that if they could only get that diagnosis, then they could enter into that pathway of diagnosis, cure, and then uh, diagnosis, treatment, and then cure. So that resolution and pain that return to normal function. And because they couldn't enter that pathway with this diagnosis of nonspecific back pain, they were really stuck. We describe in a really early paper in 2013 that started my PhD, 
this, this idea of biographical suspension. So because of these biomedical beliefs, people were um, putting their lives on hold, so like a pause button, until they could then get a diagnosis and press the play button on their lives again. So they were suspended in, we described as suspended in wellness, um, while they were sort of trying to prove that they were, they were sick or prove that they had a legitimate pain experience. So I described before that once you're, if you're fighting to prove that you're sick, you, it's, you can't get well. So this idea of suspended wellness. In the stories, we also heard suspended self. So it was the idea that, well, I'm not myself while I'm experiencing pain. So there's some sort of temporary imposter. And that once I get that diagnosis and get that cure, I'll go back to my true self. So the self is suspended. And then we had suspended future. So people were describing how without that diagnosis, you don't have a prognosis. It's an uncertain future. But also how unpredictable pain was. So it's really hard to plan for the future, short and mid and long term when you don't know how your pain is going to behave. So that future, that trajectory is sort of suspended too. So I guess what I'm trying to say there is that in addition to those sort of direct behaviors that someone might avoid movement or those sort of behaviors, we've also got this really big impact that these biomedical beliefs were having on the lives of these sufferers. So really profound and across their life spectrum. So that's where beliefs are, you know, play a really important part in the pain experience. Interesting. And so, Obviously, someone experiences pain. Then there's a cognitive appraisal that happens. So cognitively, they're appraising what's happened. I mean, traditionally in like CBT, they break that up into a threat, a loss, and a challenge. But your work has really kind of gone much deeper. And it sounds like you have at least five, if not more areas that I guess the appraisal is happening and people are either taking action or not taking action. And for some people, avoidance is in effect taking action. There is a period of time where avoidance of pain makes sense, right? Absolutely. Yep, yep. And perhaps talk about that a little bit later on when I talk to that the common sense model that we've been using to try to understand some of these behaviors because it yeah. does make sense. So before, I want to get to that common sense model because I know it's, it's the pivotal piece of your research that everyone, of course, needs to download. You can download the free gift that we have this week or you can just Google some of these papers are free. Before we get to the common sense model, where do these unhelpful, I mean, really they're unhelpful beliefs for people with pain, where are they coming from? Are there there certain key areas that we should look for as practitioners and just lay people? Yeah. So when I, in my PhD, what I did is I gathered, I recruited a group of people who had high levels of pain related fear to try to understand where some of these unhelpful beliefs came from. And in exploring that, we came across some, so we identified sort of key areas that they appeared to be influenced by. And this really resonated with some of the things that we've seen in the literature too. So a lot of it was the sense that these were just societal beliefs. And we know that these sort of biomedical beliefs and beliefs about pain directly being influenced by, um, directly um, associated with damage are really prevalent in society. So Ben Darlow's done some really great work in New Zealand. He's done a survey of the New Zealand population and he showed that, for example, 50% of the New Zealand population believe that pain in the back meant that the back is damaged. Around 90% believe that ignoring pain can damage the back and 70% believe that there's some ongoing weakness after an episode of back pain. So there's a really strong belief that he found across the population. So what that tells us is that often these beliefs are, are likely to be predating the onset of pain in a lot of our patients that come to see us. Um, so there are things that they've observed and other people, you know, a lot of children might have observed their parents. We hear about them in the media. So that's one aspect of it, these sort of societal beliefs. 
The other thing that we found was that these beliefs were heavily influenced by the, the clinical encounter. And then this is, as we are talking to the patients, we're seeing this. So the participants in my study would say things like, well, the doctor said that I have to avoid bending because that could damage my disc. So the sense that there was, there appeared to be some patients that were explicitly being told to be careful of their backs, being told that their backs were fragile or vulnerable. So that was an aspect of it. The other aspect was we heard, it appeared that some implicit sort of advice from the doctors could be influencing some of these beliefs. So people would say things like, well, the physio gave me stabilizing exercises and told me my tummy's weak. So that must mean that my back is weak. So just correlating those the two things directly. But the other really interesting one that I'm really passionate about was um, the misinterpretation of jargon that was used during the clinical encounter. So that seemed to be really important. So people would say things to me like, I have degeneration. To sort of to preface this, these were people who had experienced a lot of pain for a really long time. They had non, a diagnosis of non-specific back pain and most had experienced it for over a year. They'd really widely sought care for this pain. So when they were using terms like this, they were very familiar with their diagnostic jargon. And when I would ask them what something like a term like, well, what does degeneration mean to you? They would say things like, well, it means that I'll end up in a wheelchair or even things like it made me worry if it's carried through the genes. Does that mean my son could end up through it, end up experiencing it? Things like disc bulge, which are problematic. Well, tell me what a disc bulge means. Well, it means surgery. What does neurological mean? And this is a real, real problematic one. People saying things like, well, it means the doctor doesn't believe me, that, but I can't be a hypochondriac, or now they think I'm balmy, I'm crazy. And it was interesting to see some of these misinterpretations because there was a really lovely paper done quite a long time ago now by Toy and Barker, I think it was 2008, 2009, and they did focus groups with lay people and asked them what they thought some of these diagnostic terms meant. So these weren't patients, they hadn't necessarily experienced back pain. And they found really shocking things. So simple terms that like chronic wear and tear that we think would be relatively benign and patients would understand in the same way, would interpret in the same way that we're meaning them. Because sometimes be quite problematic how they were being interpreted. So wear and tear is shrinkage, unnatural, rotting away. But again, neurological involvement and what they documented were things like, again, something's going wrong in your head but that it could be a tumor or death within six months for some of the things that they documented. And that's really powerful because if we use those terms in a clinical setting and patients are going away thinking that that's what we've said or misinterpreting that, that has huge consequences. So I'm really interested in how some of that miscommunication happens in the clinical encounter um, and how that influences belief. So I guess we've got this sort of um, the societal beliefs being a problem. We've got that clinical encounter being a problem. In, de- in developing these unhelpful beliefs. But what we also found was that sort of third key area was that some people have just appeared to be trying to make sense of a pain experience, which really they couldn't make sense of. And so I've tried everything. I don't know what else to do. This just isn't making sense. And so that was a real key that we were seeing. And when we think back to that fear avoidance model and the idea that that fear avoidance literature came from the the phobic literature so it's the idea that someone is kinesiophobic or has an irrational fear of movement and re-injury but what we were seeing in the people we were interviewing is not everyone seemed to be phobic not everyone seemed to have this irrational fear it was really just they couldn't make sense it's just a very logical process they seemed to be going through i'm happy you said that because i talked to certain psychologists who are not so trained i would say in pain and pain science and they of course they can be very helpful because they're treating things like anxiety and depression they can 
help someone with pain. And I, oh, of course, I am a big advocate of pain psychology on this podcast, except if it's by a provider, let's just say provider, who doesn't understand pain, then they start to look at things like you have a phobia, almost like you have an anxiety disorder or you have a problem like that. I appreciate what you're saying because it makes sense to practitioners as well as the person with pain. So, you know, your take-home message, of course, that everyone should know this and listen to this and you as well as other people on this podcast talk about this is that words can hurt and cause harm. Yeah, absolutely. As I listen to you tell this story, what I'm interested, one thing that I've suddenly become interested in is you are a licensed healthcare practitioner, but in this case, as you're acting as a researcher. So you're, mm-hmm. my guess is you're working with these people, taking in all, asking them questions, taking in all this information and hearing these beliefs that quite frankly, incorrect, so to speak, but at that, but you can't necessarily act on it and educate them out of it at that point because you're working as a researcher and not as a clinician. So I'm just curious, what do you provide services like to the people after and try to help them through what's going on? I think that's a really great question. I don't get asked it very often, but... The reason why I find it interesting is because every pain practitioner I've ever met running through their veins is the fact that I want to help someone. Yeah. And you're really listening to people's qualitative stories. Like really, they're pouring their hearts out to you about what they've been through, what they're feeling, what people have told them, what, what they grew up with. But you may or may not, I don't know, be able to intervene on that. As I say, a really great question. And one of the biggest challenges as a qualitative researcher, absolutely. Um, taking off that clinical hat doesn't come easily. And I was really faced with that early on in my PhD because my PhD was also a prospective study. So I was interviewing people at one point and, and following them up at another time point. And often people will volunteer to be part of a, a study like this because they really want information and they want someone from the university who can really help them or, or know that latest um, research evidence. Um, they also knew at the time that I was attached to a very successful group of back pain researchers and that I would have access to that information. So it was really, really difficult. Ethics, when we think of research ethics, are we, we're not focused so much on the good of the individual. We're focused on more of the societal good. But I gave each person an option a couple of times in my my PhD, I was directly asked, but can you tell me what the right thing for me to do is? And it's important to give those people the option to withdraw from the study if they feel passionate about that. Otherwise, with the premise that when I come back, I will be able to give you that information afterwards, but I can't influence that trajectory at this time point. So I find that really, really challenging and still today as a researcher. Um, But one thing that I can say is that sitting down and asking someone their story when you have an hour in front of you and there is no judgment and there's no perhaps therapy that's coming afterwards, but it's, a, it's an incredibly therapeutic experience, I think, for many people to have their story heard and retold um, in the dissemination of our work. When you say that, it brings me back to like when I was on an affiliation as a physical therapy student, I remember one of my the therapists who was leading the affiliation said, during the initial evaluation, of course, take the full history, but make sure you always give them something to do, meaning an exercise or something like that, or manual therapy. But as I listen to you speak, there may be a place for physiotherapists just to sit and talk. And we often don't have the privilege of time to do that, do we? Yeah. But there, there's an aspect of that that I think is important. Yeah. yeah. Of course, I think for, mm-hmm. for most physios, I think it makes most sense for the initial evaluation. But I think depending on the patient population you're with, that a half hour of just talking and educating and listening could be really, really powerful. 
Yep. So, yep. so moving on, tell us about the common sense model, which I know is kind of the bread and butter of what you worked on and has a lot of great, important information that you want to share. Yeah. So um, I know you, you, you know this model and I know that you've interviewed other people on your podcast that have, that have used this model. And I guess we got to it excuse me, because of this idea that sense-making processes were somehow involved in the, in the story of these people with high fear. So perhaps it's easy. I like to use the example of, sort of, to illustrate the common sense model, I use the example of, say, that you imagine you woke up this morning and you have a pain in your head. And so you immediately attach a label to that pain. You say that you've got a headache. And you think, well, I, it's caused by dehydration. I haven't been drinking enough. And it's going to stop me concentrating for the rest of the day if I don't have a big glass of water and I maybe take some paracetamol. And, and then I think it's going to get better in around 20 minutes and I'll get back to doing what I want to do. But now if you imagine that you've got that same pain in your head, but someone really close to you had just been perhaps diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so immediately that might give rise to a very different set of beliefs around that pain and might give rise to a very different set of behaviors. So that's a really simple example, I think, to illustrate what this model says. So what it really is trying to say, and it's been around a very long time, this model, that when we experience a health symptom, we draw on a set of beliefs about the symptom to decide what to do about it. So that includes our beliefs around the identity of the pain, the cause of the pain, the consequences of the pain, how long we think the pain is going to last, and how much control we think we have over the pain. So that's these five belief dimensions. And and we develop those beliefs based on our previous experiences of the symptom, observing others, um, and what we've been told about the symptom. So when we experience that symptom, we draw on the set of beliefs that gives rise to what we call problem-solving behavior. And as long as the outcome of that behavior is in the direction of our target goal, then we will sustain that behavior over time. But if it's not, then we might adapt our beliefs. So we upgrade and change um, our beliefs and that can then adjust our behavior accordingly. So we have this really problem-solving, ongoing problem-solving that's happening. The problem in people with pain is that sometimes we don't have, or when, when we're always, the outcome of the behaviors is never in the direction that we want it to be. Then we keep thinking, okay, well, this representation, we call it, these five beliefs aren't really helping me make sense of my pain. And suddenly we don't know where else to draw from these beliefs. We've got real gaps in our understanding. So if we can't have a cognitive representation to guide problem-solving behavior, what happens according to the common sense model is that our behavior will be driven by our emotional response to the symptoms um, or our emotional response to that cognitive representation. Consistently in the literature, we see that a symptom which is interpreted as having sort of dire catastrophic consequences will be really intense or to be quite unpredictable, then they're likely to give rise to a fear response. So that's where fear can come into this common sense model really well. So if the higher um, level centers aren't able to figure out the problem, because pain is a problem to the organism, then the, the middle level emotional centers will take over. That's right. Yeah. So, so if we use an example of back pain, say we had somebody who, who bent over and, and felt pain in their back a few weeks ago, then, or maybe a few days ago, but they haven't had an episode of back pain before, but they've seen plenty of people that have then they might think, well, I know that from bending over, you could get a bulging disc. So maybe my identity label is maybe I've got a bulging disc. And I know that can be caused by bending and lifting. So those cause beliefs. I know that if that disc bulges out, then maybe it could push on my spinal cord and then maybe I could end up paraplegic. I could end up in a wheelchair. And then that can have really big big consequences. Um, So I think maybe I just need to rest and avoid doing any bending or lifting or anything 
using my back too much. So that's a sort of control. And then maybe it'll get better in a couple of weeks. So those timelines. So maybe we have a, a representation that looks like that. And a common sense response to a representation like that would be to avoid bending and lifting and to rest more. Right. So that's completely logical. That's what we've heard our whole lives. And as long as the outcome of that, that resting is, is that we have no increase in behavior and sorry, in pain, so therefore we don't think we're causing any more damage, then we're going to keep on doing that behavior. That's logical. The problem is what happens down the track. So we go beyond that timeline. Suddenly we go to two weeks and we've been resting and we're still feeling some pain. So then they think, okay, well, maybe my back's just a little, we might upgrade our, our thinking. So we think, well, maybe my back is just weak now and that the injury and now my rest has, has made my back weak. I'm worried that I could re-injure it in the future. So maybe I just need to get some exercises to strengthen up my back and then I can expect a full recovery. So we go see a physio. Again, that's really common sense problem-solving behavior. But if we jump forward, so three months down the track, and this is beyond the time that the physio said that you know, my back should be getting stronger by now. I've been doing all this strengthening work, all this exercising, lots of physio. Why, is my back, why am I still feeling this pain? And so this is where we can start getting into problems. So again, we might upgrade our thinking. We think, oh gosh, maybe I could actually have a damaged disc here that, and movement is actually making it worse. Again, I'm worried about the wheelchair. When is this getting better? Maybe I actually need surgery. So we go off and we see the, the surgeon or we, see, we get a scan. Or, and then that comes back saying, well, look, you've got some degenerative changes, but surgery is not really an option. And so here we think we get a bit stuck now. So we upgrade our representation. We think, okay, you know, we've got degeneration. Difficult to know what that means. But we start then pain is still being really unpredictable. We've still got this uncertain trajectory. And so suddenly we start withdrawing a little bit more. We're resting more. We're withdrawing from activities and nothing is really starting to make sense. And this is where we can get really trapped into a cycle of fear. So that's where we think this model is, is really quite helpful for us to understand how some people can get trapped in that cycle just through this problematic problem solving. Yeah. And of course, inability to make sense. Yeah. And of course, very stuck and people can be stuck there for years and decades without running into this great information like you have. So if I'm a practitioner and a practitioner is listening to this podcast, which they are, and they're thinking, okay, how do I start to, what are the questions that I can start to ask my patients to run the initial evaluation or perhaps at visit number two that will help me to assess these pain-related fear beliefs so they can start to kind of tweeze this out and start to identify it and treat it? Sure. That's a really great question too. And I think what's really important before I go into maybe some of those questions is that I think this model really helps physios to understand how we can play a role. And I think often physiotherapists are really worried. You said that line with maybe the pain psychologists and feeling like maybe we don't have a role to play in managing those emotional responses to pain and that that's distress. But I think this model really shows that um, it helps physios understand that we do play a role, I, in my opinion, in, in addressing those emotional responses by helping people make sense of their pain. So this is something that is well within our, our scope of practice, in my opinion. And I think that we also play an important role um, as far as belief change going hand in hand with behavior change, but maybe I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. For any clinician that has a patient coming to see them with pain, I think it's really important that we know how that individual is representing their pain. We need to tap into these five belief dimensions. So how do they make sense of their pain experience? So we can ask them questions around that identity domain. So do you have a diagnosis for your pain? 
Can you explain to me what that means? So that problematic interpretations on the jargon. Have you had any scans? What did the scans show you? So trying to look around for those beliefs. Around the cause domain, so do you know what causes your pain and how predictable is your pain? Is there always a cause and effect? Is how predictable is that cause effect? The consequences of your pain, what do you think the consequences of your pain or your diagnosis are? Um, can you prevent your pain from flaring up? So around that control domain. And can you control the pain once it's flared up? Patients often um, distinguish between those two control um, factors. And then the timeline belief. So how long do you expect your pain will last? How hopefully for the future? And what do you think it's going to take to get your pain better? And as clinicians, we should be really listening for any gaps in understanding that we need to help fill or any incorrect beliefs there that we need to maybe to try to adjust. And that's where I think behavioral techniques are really important because and obviously I've done a lot of work with Pete and CFT and that really puts a lot of emphasis on exposure to feared movements and activities as a the mechanism to disconfirm beliefs and giving some of this information really needs to go hand in hand with exposing somebody or letting someone experience this for themselves. It's one thing to be told and it's another thing to experiencing it, to experiencing uh, it yourself. Physios, I think, have a really important role to be teach to exposing patients to movement, but also in such a way that doesn't then increase their pain, that doesn't, often these people are really highly sensitized and, and doing a repeated movement, for example, or exposing can cause more pain. And then we get trapped in our cycle again, thinking, well, it is causing pain. Is it causing damage? And these light bulbs go off. So helping somebody to move with pain control during this process, I think is important. And those questions that you just mentioned, of course, they're in the paper, everyone can download. How long does it typically take a practitioner to run through that and to collect that information from a patient? Look, I don't think it, it needs to take very long. So we, you know, and this is where it's a challenging group to be working with the orthopedic surgeons who have a very short amount of time with patients. But even them in a short session, I think even just spending five minutes is better than nothing of asking someone, you know, what have you been told about your pain? How long do you think, you know, these are quick questions that you can run through and get a lot of information fairly quickly from patients. Because yeah. they are really, they're brief cognitive interventions, really, is really what they are. Yeah, And yeah. as you mentioned, they're well within the scope of physical therapy practice, as well as other practitioners who work with people with pain. Even at this point, even a lot of fitness professionals who are starting to really understand yeah. what pain is and what it really means for people. So those are the sample questions. We talked about the common sense model. Of course, a lot of your work has informed Peter O'Sullivan's work with CFT. Where would you like to see your research move forward next? Yeah. So you, oh, you mentioned, I'm sorry, you mentioned the orthopedic surgeons. That's, I wanted to get sure. back to that. So I'm coming back sure. to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I, look, I think there's similar principles across the board. So one thing that we're really trying to do, um, and I think I sent a link as part of the, the resources I provided today, but Pete's group have developed some really nice communication training tools. That's because we often get asked by clinicians, I know what to say, but how do I say it? And so I think modeling those behaviors, sometimes clinician behaviors is, can be really helpful. Pete's developed tools that are sort of interactive. And so we've got a, an example of a clinical encounter happening. The patients ask a question and we give a, an example of a helpful response to that and an unhelpful response. And it's a bit interactive. Um, you can have a look through that, that tool and click on what you think is the right response and have some evidence as to why, which one is correct. Um, so I think that those sort of interactive tools can be really helpful. And we're trying to um, disseminate that information out to the pain world. Obviously, we've got really close links in with the physio community, but it's really great if we can tap into the sort of GP and the orthopedic surgeons or these other clinicians, especially around, at the moment, we're doing a lot of work in osteoarthritis and so primary care and the GPs, the orthopedic surgeons and the physios are really important there. 
So yes, we've developed this tool in back pain, but we're interested in developing some more of these tools in, at the moment, hip away and knee osteoarthritis too, as two other key areas that we're seeing a lot of problematic beliefs. And that's sort of where my work has, has progressed to and where I'm at at the moment with my group of orthopedic surgeons. So maybe to summarize a little bit of my work there, we are um, attached to a hospital where we do, we're one of the um, biggest joint replacement services in Australia. And what we're interested in looking at is we've got in Australia and around the world, there's quite a high rate of joint replacement in patients who perhaps not the best candidates for surgery. So they don't meet evidence-based criteria for surgery. And this is a really high volume procedure and lots of people have osteoarthritis. And so this is becoming a placing an untenable strain, I guess, on our health systems. So one thing we're looking at is, is those pathways, how did this person get to the joint replacement point in time? And so a lot of the interview work that I've done is with these people that are on a waiting list. And we're seeing quite often that people, um, while the guidelines would tell us we, we need to, um, everyone with osteoarthritis needs to engage in an exercise intervention. So exercise, weight loss, um, these sort of interventions need to be the first line of care. But often people are getting right through to the point of surgery and haven't tried any of these things and certainly haven't given them a good go if they, if they have ever done any, engaged in any. And that's something that, again, is backed up with literature elsewhere as well. So how do people get to this point? Some of the work we've been doing with patients is asking them about their beliefs too and their beliefs around the treatment. And what we see, or what we've just published in our recent 2009 paper in clinical orthopedics and related research, was that many people were saying, well, once I've been diagnosed with bone on bone, what's the point in doing any physio? Because a physio can't replace cartilage in my knee. It can only make damage my knee. So as soon as they hear bone on bone from any clinician, whether it's the, the GP who showed off there's a little bit of bone on bone changes in your knee or the physio, it's the end then. So it's disengagement from those non-surgical interventions. And then it's a matter of sort of getting yourself onto a waiting list for a joint replacement because that's the only definitive way to be able to fix my knee. In the meantime, while there, some people are considered too young to get on a waiting list or there could be lots of barriers to them getting there, so often we have a lot of people sitting around for a long time that are not engaging in the active intervention. We did see, interestingly, a really high uptake of experimental sort of interventions of people trying different supplementary sort of medication or even stem cell sort of medication, um, things which were seen to regenerate cartilage in patients' minds. So a lot of them were going down that sort of route while they were waiting to get on surgical waiting lists. So that was one, that's one side of the work we've been looking at is how these beliefs have influenced what the treatment-seeking behaviors, so what treatments have sought out are really insightful, given us some really interesting ideas of how we can maybe change the messaging at a GP level and the, to try, especially in Australia, it's the general practitioners as the gatekeepers of care. So that's where we're really targeting some of these interventions that if we can try to change some of that communication in the GP setting, hopefully we can send more referrals towards physio and less straight to the orthopedic surgeons. That's one aspect. Sounds good to me. How long does someone wait for a joint replacement in Australia? That's quite variable. It really depends on the service. Yeah, it'd be tricky for me to say. At our service, I think people are waiting between three and six months. When you say service, meaning the hospital, I guess? Or? So the hospital service, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's quite, it can really vary. Yeah. So that's that. And then also the other side of it, that then we've been doing work with the orthopedic surgeons too, to have a look at, okay, so why this person has got to you here today? Um, so why, why are you offering this person surgery when perhaps they don't meet these evidence-based criteria and they haven't? gone through the non-surgical route um, to arrive at this point today. And that's really insightful too, to hear some of those perceptions. And look, I think at the end of the day, orthopedic surgeons have their heart in the right place and they've got a person in front of them who really needs help and is asking for help. 
And if it's perceived that that person is really at the end of the road and that there's no alternative intervention, then the surgeon wants to offer them something and what they can offer is surgery. So we were doing a lot of work around um, educating the orthopedic surgeons too that there are different routes that can still be effective in end-stage osteoarthritis, um, these non-surgical routes. And so making those routes easy for those surgeons to refer to as well is really important. Yeah. I'm curious to know how the primary care physicians respond to probably you're explaining pain to them first and then helping them out with some of this common sense model. The university where I teach, the physical therapy staff actually trains the third year medical students on how to do musculoskeletal exams. So at, the, at, our, at our university, we have a little bit of kind of like getting to them early, so to speak, which is great. Mm-hmm. We feel like we're, of course, being valued and they love it, actually. How do, how do the GPs who've been out a while already practicing respond to just learning about, oh, there is no, you know, bone on bone is not really a correct term and some of the other terms that they're using in clinical practice with patients to explain pain? So for now, that's a really difficult group for us to tap into because we've got really strong links with the orthopedic surgeons and with the Australian Orthopedic Association, we're trying to embed some of this information, these tools that you know, we're developing into their training programs. But the GPs, um, as yet, have been a little bit, just because of our, our connections, have been a little bit more difficult to tap into. And I think they have a really tough call, GPs. Um, it's really hard for them in a very short, again, clinical, very time pressured. I don't know how that is in other countries, but certainly in Australia, there's a lot of pressure on a GP. When a patient is sitting there saying, you know, I need to see the orthopedic surgeon and requesting that from the GP, it's really difficult for them to spend the time to say why that might not be appropriate. And trying to facilitate behavior change towards the exercise end is really tricky in a short consultation. So that's where we're also really interested and open to ideas of how we can tap into a general practitioner. When I listened to your um, questions before, kind of those brief interventions, which are common in a lot yeah, of psychology yeah. literature, like brief cognitive interventions. I'm like, oh, this is really cool because this can fit into a busy GP, a busy physiatrist. Yes. Even some of the clinics in the United States are very busy physiotherapy clinics that see multiple patients an hour. And that's unfortunately the way it is in certain clinics. But I think you do an incredible yeah, re- research. Yeah, they're short. I think you do an incredible research and I appreciate you being here and sharing your knowledge with us. Tell everyone how they can learn more about you. Um, so I've got my webpage at the University of Melbourne that people can go and have a look at um, the work that I'm currently doing. Um, I'm on ResearchGate and my publications appear there. And if there's anyone that would like to access any of these papers, and then it's got my, my contact details there. Yeah, that's probably the easiest ways. Excellent. So I want to thank Samantha for joining us this week on the Healing Pain Podcast, talking about how to make sense of patient beliefs and behaviors when it comes to chronic pain. Of course, grab this link and share with your friends and family on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Drop it into your favorite Facebook group where there's lots of pain geeks, physiotherapists, pain psychologists, people with pain who are interested in learning more. This is just like an intervention right here. Just listening to Samantha for 45 minutes that can help a lot of people. I'm Dr. Joe Tad. It's a pleasure being with all of you this week and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much, Jen. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. That's IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.